All right. Thank you again for uh, those who work with our children. That is just such a blessing to both have them uh, in the service, but also uh, thank you for what you are teaching them about Jesus and your love for them that really shows through. This morning, we're going to be in Luke chapter 19. We're going to jump ahead in our series in Luke to the place where um, Luke begins his account of Christ's passion. And this starts with the triumphal entry and then will continue uh, through the whole suffering that took place in the life of Jesus to accomplish our salvation. And I want to pick up and read for us this morning Luke chapter 19, verses 28 to 44. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And as he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, He sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? Tell him, The Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? And they replied, The Lord needs it. And they brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. And as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. And as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. And they will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Let's pray. Father, we come today to a passage that is very familiar to us the account of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. And though it is familiar, I pray, Father, that you would use this word to encourage us today and to help us see things that perhaps we have not seen before or to think about Jesus and his power, his might, his knowledge, his wisdom and what he means to each of us. We ask this in his name. Amen. The Gospels were written so that we might know who Jesus is. The stories that they told about Jesus, the parables that they included, the miracles that he performed, were all included for that reason, that we might know who Jesus is. And there were many that they could have chosen from. And what we see in each of the Gospels is that they are selective according to their own intent or focus. Some include the same. I mean, there are certain uh, parables or miracles that are included in all of the Gospels. And then there are some that are unique to each individual Gospel. 
For example, John the Apostle writes near the end of his gospel that Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, that is, the promised Messiah, and that by believing you may have life in his name. We see their intent. They want each of us to know who Jesus is, but they also want us to come to a point of decision. The Gospels are written in such a way that everyone must decide what they believe. Who is Jesus? Is he the Lord and Savior of us all? Or is he, as C.S. Lewis said, is he a liar or a lunatic or something worse? There is no middle ground. When we read the Gospels, we must make that choice. And for me, the most compelling part of the Gospels is his passion. These events that took place in the last week of Jesus' life, his suffering, his death, and his resurrection. It is the reason he came. He came to give his life for us. He came to pay the penalty of our sins and bridge that gap that separated us from his heavenly Father. And when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on that day, the whole city was stirred. And Matthew tells us that they asked the question, who is this? Who is this man? Well, what we're going to see in Luke's gospel this morning is that Luke gives us three pictures of Jesus that are quite profound. Three pictures that should encourage and be a comfort to us all. Number one, he presents Jesus as the sovereign Lord. And we see that in verses 28 to 34. Jesus came from Galilee, and he came to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. It's what all the pilgrims or faithful followers would do. And as he came from Galilee, they would take the normal route, which brought them along the Jordan River, where they would come south. And when they got to Jericho, they would make that turn to go up to Jerusalem. From Jericho, they would pass through this Judean wilderness, this desolate area. And they are going up to Jerusalem literally because where Jericho is, it's about 800 feet below sea level and Jerusalem is 2,600 feet above sea level. In this distance of 15 miles through the wilderness, they'll go up and down these hills. They'll wander around these narrow pathways that led toward Jerusalem. It was a difficult climb. It was a dangerous journey at time. That's why pilgrims often traveled together for protection. But as Jesus was going along this route, he knew full well what was going to happen to him when he entered the city. And he tells us here that as he came toward Bethany and Bethpage, Jesus went on ahead and he came to this village called Bethany. It was where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus lived. It is a place where Jesus had performed this great miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead. He loved this family, and he had stayed at their home before. And as they were coming through these villages toward the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples ahead, and he tells them that they're to go on into the village, and there they'll find this colt, this offspring of a donkey that no one has ever ridden on before, and they are to get it and bring it to him. 
And if anyone questions that, they are to say, tell him the Lord needs it. Now, the impression that we get here is that all of this has been prearranged. They come and they find it just as Jesus had told them. They are even asked by the owners, hey guys, what do you think you're doing here, you know? And they respond that the Lord needs it and somehow these owners knew. They knew. And what we see in this first picture of Jesus is that he is the sovereign Lord and everything is under his control. There are no surprises. You get this in every account of the gospel, that Jesus knew what was going to happen. This was God's plan from the very beginning to accomplish our salvation. There are no surprises here. His death was not an accident. It was the way that Jesus would atone for our sins. And that knowledge that Jesus is sovereign over all is a great comfort to us as we read what is about to happen. We also see here that Jesus is the supreme Lord and the rightful owner of everything we possess. When he asks for the use of this colt, that is within his right. He's the owner of all that we have as well. We are just simply stewards. It's not like, you know, we give God a tithe and then everything else belongs to us and we can do whatever we wish with that. No, everything we have is a gift from God. It all belongs to him. It's all to be used for his glory. And here we see an example of Jesus coming and asking for what is rightfully his. Later, when the disciples are sent by Jesus to uh, arrange for the Passover, they ask him, you know, Jesus, where do you want to celebrate the Passover? And Jesus tells them in chapter 22, verses 10 to 12, same kind of deal. He says, as you enter the city, you're going to see a man carrying a jar of water, and he will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he'll show you a large room, all furnished. Make preparations there. Again, everything is prearranged. Jesus in his sovereignty has gone before them. The Lord has spoken to these individuals who somehow they knew this time, this place, they were to prepare these things. And even his death is not an accident. Jesus had told his disciples beforehand what was going to happen when they went to Jerusalem so that they would not be surprised by it. For example, in Luke chapter 18, he said this. Jesus took the twelve aside and he told them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He'll be handed over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him, And kill him. And on the third day he will rise again. And the disciples heard that. They heard those words, but they didn't understand. This just didn't fit with what they were thinking. They thought, Jesus is the Messiah. He's God's anointed. He's not going to die. He's the king. He's going to reign. He's going to establish his kingdom on the earth, and we will reign with him. What is this talk about going to Jerusalem and dying? But this day, this hour was chosen by God in eternity past 
And Jesus came to Jerusalem knowing full well what would happen to him in these days. But Jesus is sovereign over our lives too. And nothing happens to us by chance. In his book, A Sweet and Bitter Providence, John Piper wrote these words. He said, life is not a straight line that leads from one blessing to the next and then finally to heaven. Life is a winding and troubled road, switchback after switchback. And the point of biblical stories like Joseph and Job and Esther and Ruth is to help us feel in our bones and not just know in our heads that God is for us in all these strange turns. God is not just showing up after the trouble and cleaning it up. He is plotting the course and managing the troubles with far-reaching purposes for our good and for the glory of Jesus Christ. And think about that. I mean, think about those examples. You know, Joseph, when he was rejected by his brothers, sold into slavery, ends up in a, an Egyptian prison, kind of at the lowest of the low, life is in the pits. He had no idea that God would raise him up and use him to preserve his people as a nation. Job. Job, who had a blessed life, who had children and possessions, and God had blessed him, lost it all, and had no idea of the conversation that was going on in heaven between Satan and God. And that Satan had really brought a charge against God. God, you are not worthy of being loved just for yourself. The only reason Job worships you is because you blessed him. Take away what he has and he'll curse you to your face. And here's Job, not knowing that he is center stage in this drama. But his life would be a witness to the glory and greatness of God. Esther, when she became queen of Persia, had no idea that God was going to use her, that she had come to that position and power for such a time as this, that she would be used to preserve the nation of Israel. And Ruth... Ruth was a Moabite, those ancient enemies of Israel, and she had no idea that when she chose to go with her mother-in-law, she who had lost her husband and had no child, no heir, would go back to Israel, and she would claim Israel's God as her God. She had no idea that she would become the great-grandmother of King David. But God was at work in each of these lives. And God doesn't waste anything. He doesn't waste anything in our lives either. But he takes the circumstances of our lives when we give them to him. And he uses them for our good and for his glory. God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. Jesus is the sovereign Lord. A second picture we get here is that Jesus is the humble king. And we see that in verses 35 to 40. The disciples went. They found the colt. They brought it to Jesus. They threw their cloaks on the colt like a saddle, if you will. And they put Jesus on it. And as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. They're going before him. And they're doing this as kind of a red carpet treatment, if you will, so that Jesus can ride into Jerusalem. 
It's an act of honor. Believing that Jesus is the Messiah. Believing that he is worthy of our praise and our devotion. And as the road came to the top of the Mount of Olives and they crested that hill and then they came and it overlooks the city of Jerusalem and they started going down, the whole crowd of disciples, Luke tells us, began joyfully to praise God in loud voices. The note about it being the crowd of disciples may help explain the response of the crowd later in the week that shouts, crucify him crucify him two different crowds those who came with jesus on this day his followers those who believed that jesus was the son of god the savior who had come into the world now began to shout blessed is the king who comes in the name of the lord peace in heaven and glory in the highest What's going on here? What's happening in this text? Well, there is a lot going on here. Jesus, who had commanded the demons not to tell who he is, now openly declares by his actions that he is the Messiah. He did not want that announcement made prematurely. There was too much to do. The training of the 12 needed to take place. The passing on of what they would need to know to carry out his mission in the world needed to happen. But now the time had come for the lamb to be crucified. And so he comes into Jerusalem and he openly declares that he is the Messiah. Those who knew the scriptures well would make the connection. Immediately, they understood. They saw what was going on. This place, this Mount of Olives had such significance because the prophets had said that it was there that the Messiah would be revealed to the world. In fact, in his second coming, that Mount of Olives features into it that when Jesus returns and his feet touch on the Mount of Olives, that Mount is going to be split in two. That one day Jesus will come again. But on this day, they thought of what the prophet Zechariah had said in that passage we read earlier. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and victorious. Lowly, riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And they're thinking, here we're seeing it. Here's Jesus. He's coming in riding on this colt. He is going to come and he's going to secure our peace and he's going to bring peace to the nations. But it was not as they expected. The peace that he would bring in that week would be peace with God. As he lay down his life for our sins. But the day will come in the future. When he will return as that conquering king. What we see here is a picture of Jesus. That he is the king. But he is a king like no other. He comes humbly. Not on a war horse. But on a donkey's colt. And borrowed at that. He doesn't even own it. He comes poor and meek and lowly. 
and he comes to bring peace. And think about for the people the contrast of what they are seeing here as they are living under Roman rule and Rome comes with might. Rome comes with power. Rome comes with its armies marching and the general is in the lead. And they come and everybody's supposed to bow before them. And here comes this king. On a, on a beast of burden. On a lowly animal who is used to serve or used to farm or used to cultivate crops. It's amazing. I mean, the contrast would have been astounding for those who witness it. The cry that they shouted that day, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, comes from Psalm 118, verse 26. It's in a section of the Psalms that are called the Hallel Psalms. These are Psalms of praise. We think of hallelujah, that's hallel. Hallel means praise. And these were Psalms that were read in every Passover service. I mean, they would have been as well known to them as John 3.16 is to us. They knew it. They were familiar. And so these words come naturally to their lips as they think of Jesus entering the city as the Messiah. Luke takes that quote. He drops the word Hosanna. He is writing for mostly a Gentile audience, and perhaps they would not have understood what Hosanna means. It means, Lord, save us. And then where it reads, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, he puts blessed is the king. I mean, that psalm is a messianic psalm. It is about the king. And so for his Gentile readers, he is making it very plain. Blessed is the king. This is the true king who is coming into the city of Jerusalem. And he comes in the name of the Lord, God Almighty. Luke wants to make it very clear who Jesus is. He is the humble king. And the second quote, peace in heaven and glory in the highest, takes us back to the angel's announcement at Jesus' birth when they shouted glory to God in the highest and peace on earth among men with whom God is pleased. Only here it is peace in heaven. That Jesus has come not just to bring peace on the earth, but to make peace in our relationship with God. And when he lays down his life for us, he will enter into that temple in heaven where he will make atonement for our sins. Peace on earth. Peace in heaven. Glory to God in the highest. Well, the Pharisees were in the crowd that day as well. And they did not like what they were hearing. And they shouted at him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Why are you letting them talk like this? Why are you letting them say these things? And Jesus said, I tell you that if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. All of creation waits. All of creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For that day that is coming in the future when Jesus Christ will return. And as the book of Revelation describes, when he comes with all the host of heaven riding on his war horse, his charger. 
to bring an end to his enemies and to establish his kingdom on earth. But on this day, Jesus comes as the meek and lowly king. And he comes to those who are poor in spirit who will recognize him. And he uses humble people who will trust him. Joe Bailey, a Christian author many years ago, wrote this psalm for Palm Sunday. And here's what he said. He said, King Jesus, why did you choose a lowly donkey to carry you to ride in your parade? Had you no friend who owned a horse, a royal mount with spirit for a king to ride? Why choose a donkey, a small, unassuming beast of burden, trained to plow and not carry kings? King Jesus, why did you choose me? a lowly, unimportant person to bear you in my world today. I'm poor and unimportant, trained to work, not carry kings, let alone the king of kings. And yet you've chosen me to carry you in triumph in this world's parade. King Jesus, keep me small so all may see how great you are. Keep me humble so all may say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And not what a great donkey he rides. I like that. It's all about Jesus. It's not all about us. And he comes to lowly and humble people and he chooses to use them to accomplish his purposes in the world. And when he does that, he gets the glory and everybody can see that it was done by the grace of our God and not by us. And thirdly, We get a picture here of Jesus as a sorrowful Savior. And we see that in verses 41 to 44. As he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it. When you come down the Mount of Olives on that eastern uh, side of Jerusalem, there's a place where it levels out and you can see the whole city of Jerusalem. You see this panorama. You see the temple mount that is before you. You see the temple in all of its glory, brilliant white and the gold that was there that trimmed it. You see this place that was so important in Judaism. This was the the temple mount where God's people would come to worship him and meet with him. And the whole city was there shining in the sun. But Jesus comes and he sees that. And he wept. Jeremiah was called the weeping prophet. Jesus is the weeping savior. Isaiah called him a man of sorrows, familiar with grief. He identified with us in our suffering, in our sin. He identified with us in our weakness and the sorrows. And he would bear them upon that cross when he went to Jerusalem. He understood the trials that we go through. He knew the weight that we bore. And he would now take that upon himself. But he also understood what was going to happen to Jerusalem. I mean, and think about the contrast here. Here's Jesus coming down the Mount of Olives. The disciples, you know, they're waving the palm branches. They're spreading cloaks in front of them. They're shouting, Hail to the King! And they're worshiping God for what he's going to do. And now Jesus stops and he breaks into tears. And not just lightly, but he is weeping over the city of Jerusalem. 
What must they have thought? Jesus, what's going on here? But Jesus knew what would happen to Jerusalem. And their rejection of the Messiah was now final. They had had their opportunity. They had seen the miracles he performed. They had heard him teach and preach and share this good news. John the Baptist had prepared the way, calling them to repentance. Jesus had come declaring the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he was calling them to repentance, to turn from their sin, turn back to God. And they would not. They rejected him. And now that decision was final. In the days ahead, destruction would come at the hands of the Roman general Titus in A.D. 70. The Roman 10th Legion would march and surround Jerusalem. They would be held captive in that city until the city walls were broken down and the city succumbed. The Romans would not leave one stone upon another. The temple would be totally destroyed. The fire that they set was so hot that the gold melted in the temple, ran down into the cracks and the stones. That's one of the reasons why no stone was left upon one another, because to get that gold out, they moved those stones, those massive blocks. Thousands of people died from starvation and then by the sword. The historian Josephus, who wrote at that time, tells us that Caesar had already commanded the entire city and the temple to be razed to the ground, leaving only the towers that projected higher than the others to stand. And that part of the wall which enclosed the city on the west, this was to be an encampment for the troops which would be left behind. And the towers were to reveal to posterity how great a city Jerusalem had been and what sort of fortifications the Roman army had dominated. And all the rest of the wall which encompassed the city was to be demolished and leveled to the ground so that no one who came there in the future would ever believe that that city had been inhabited. Raised to the ground. Totally destroyed. It's people gone. Jesus wept bitterly over Jerusalem, knowing what was about to come. It didn't have to be this way. If only they had listened, if only they had repented, if only they had turned to God from their sin and put their trust in Jesus. It's still going on, isn't it? There is still that opportunity to come to know Christ and people still reject the message. And because of that, wars and strife and conflict continue in our world. I think of this story, I think I shared it with you before, but it's about Ravi Zacharias, the author and apologist who had the opportunity a few years ago to speak with one of the founders of Hamas. We know Hamas from the news in the Middle East as this terrorist organization. And they had brought together these different people trying to bring some agreement, some peace to that part of the world. And Ravi Zacharias had the opportunity to talk to him. And he said, do you know why the Middle East is in the cauldron of hate? 
It is because it's living with the logic of unforgiveness. I was talking to one of the founders of Hamas, Sheikh Talal, and I was part of a group of people who had gone to the Middle East to try and bring people together to a peace table. And Sheikh Talal gave us a great meal and told us of 18 years that he'd served in prison and how some of his children had been lost in suicide bombings. And when my term, turn came to ask a question, I said, Sheikh, forgive me if I'm asking you the wrong question. But please tell me, what do you think of suicide bombing and sending your children out like that? And after he had finished his answer, I said to him, I said, Sheik, you and I may never see each other again, so I want you to hear me. A little distance from here is a mountain upon which Abraham went 4,000 years ago to offer his son. And as the knife was about to fall, God said, stop. And I said, do you know what God said after that? And he shook his head. And I said, God said, I myself will provide. And he nodded his head. And I said, very close to where you and I are sitting, Sheik, is a hill. And 2,000 years ago, God kept that promise. And he brought his own son. And God did not stop this time. He sacrificed his own son for us. And he just stared at me. The room was full of smoke with all of his security people. And I said, I may never see you again, but I want to leave you with this. That until you and I receive the son that God has provided, we will be offering our own sons and daughters on the battlefields of this world for land and power and pride. Until we come, and receive God's Son. Wars and conflict are going to continue. I could see the man's lips beginning to quiver, and he was sitting right next to me. Nobody said anything after that. And as we were walking out, Sheikh Talal went quickly, shook hands with everyone, and then he came over to me, grabbed me by the shoulders, kissed, kissed me on both sides of the face, and said, I hope to see you again someday. Ravi wrote, when you understand Christ's grace, it is an unparalleled message. In Hinduism, you pay with karma. In Islam, you never know if your good deeds will outweigh your bad deeds. But with Christianity, the grace of Christ comes to you and says, if any man will come to me, I will in no wise cast him out. How many more must die? How many more suicide bombings? How many more terrorist attacks? How many more wars and conflicts need to occur until the nations recognize this one who came to bring peace? Jesus came to bring peace and hope and salvation to our world. And what Luke shows us here is that he is the sovereign Lord and we can trust him. We can trust him with the circumstances of our life as well. Jesus is the humble king, and he came to bring peace, but one day he's going to return in power, and every eye will see him, and every knee will bow before him. And Jesus is the sorrowful Savior, and he weeps over our sin too. He longs for us to come to him in faith and repentance. Will you turn to him today? Let's pray.
Father, thank you for sending your son to bring peace to our world. To be that way of salvation that if we will put our trust and our confidence in him. And if we will admit our sin and ask for your forgiveness, you will forgive us. And if you've never made that commitment to Christ before and you'd like to do so today, would you just say to him, Jesus, thank you that you were willing to die on the cross for my sins. I ask you to forgive me of my sins and come into my life and be my Savior and Lord. Help me to know you better and to know your will for my life. Jesus will take you at your word and you could begin that relationship with him this very hour. And Father, as we remember the events of this week coming up and we read through the, through the gospels and we think about all that Jesus sacrificed for us, may our hearts be filled with worship and adoration and thanks to Jesus, our Savior and Lord. In his name we pray, amen. Would you stand with us as we close?